welcome to Adventures in DevOps. I am your host, Scott Nixon, and I'm here today and we're having a panelist episode with my two co-hosts. I'll just pass this over to Jeffrey. You want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, Jeffrey Grumman. Uh, I do cybersecurity consulting work and uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun today as we just sort of chat about different topics uh, in the DevOps area and I'm going to pass it over to Henry. Yeah, hi guys. Uh, I'm Henry Jukes, um, uh, engineer and experimentation advisor over at Split Software, um, and um, I'm back joining the panel for the first time. Uh, actually, calling you guys from paternity leave, and uh, excited to, to kind oh, nice. of dig into some topics with you. This episode is sponsored by Gravitational. As your team and cloud infrastructure grows, you may want to reevaluate how you access SSH servers and Kubernetes clusters. Gravitational Teleport is an emerging open source replacement for OpenSSH, which was built for modern cloud workflows. Teleport is opinionated. It does not allow SSH keys, and instead it insists on certificate-based authentication, making it dead easy to set up and use. Teleport is fully compatible with your SSH and Kubernetes tooling, comes with a beautiful web UI and an audit log, and it allows users to access servers outside of data centers like IoT devices. It was called Teleport because it creates the illusion that all your company's servers are in the same room with you, even if some of them are self-driving vehicles. Download Teleport on gravitational.com slash teleport or find it on github.com slash gravitational slash teleport. Awesome. Yeah, I, I just realized I didn't introduce myself, so I'll go ahead and... Uh, so I do DevOps consulting with a company called Stelligent and currently doing uh, database schema pipelines. So for a big, big company. So nice. very exciting stuff going on, L learning Jenkins and groovy and all kinds of fun DevOpsy languages and stuff. So. <laughs> all right. So uh, I think the first point we were going to kind of talk about was um, how can companies organize for the greatest DevOps success, whether that's dedicated operation teams, pure developer ownership of ops, you know, SRE, you know, all those types of fun things. So anybody have any thoughts to kick that off? Yeah, I, I might elaborate on this a bit more. Um, kind of, you know, one of these questions that I always talk to with different companies that I've worked with or, you know, that, that have a DevOps presence is kind of what DevOps means to them and, and how they're kind of implementing that pattern to a certain extent. You know, DevOps is just kind of our way of combining software development and operations together. Um, but, you know, I've seen it exist in worlds where, you know, people have a dedicated SRE team that's that's just focused on site reliability and they're they're working you know just kind of a, a stage in the process as you'd see in kind of your more traditional operations roles where, where they just are in the loop as you're performing releases as software is being developed um, and maybe they're, they're prioritizing the tasks the the uh, maintain the CI/CD pipeline, kind of streamline that development lifecycle. Um, but then, uh, you know, I've worked with other organizations where you know people interpret DevOps as saying that every developer should be an ops person. You know, for that that perspective that you know if you are pushing code, you should be familiar with and able to maintain the hardware that you're pushing that code onto or the databases that you depend on. I think in a lot of ways that makes a lot of sense to me. That you know, if if someone's relying on a particular database or you know some level of uh, infrastructure needs, uh, you know the, you, the people that have those requirements or that drive the features that are running on those tools are going to be the ones that are going to be most familiar with what their needs are, what the provisioning is, what scaling is going to look like in the future. But on the flip side, you're in a position where you're now expecting uh, every engineer that you hire to be familiar with AWS or Google Cloud or, you know, that, that they're comfortable running a Docker container. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of uh, overhead that, that people need to be able to maintain. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to kind of, especially with both of you being very closely tied to DevOps consulting. How do you see a lot of these organizations organizing and then, you know, being able to execute against that pattern? You, you know, what, one thing I, I love to do sort of, I'm sorry, just to throw, throw this out, Henry, but you know, you were, you, something you mentioned, I, I just feel like in, in, I think it'd be great to sort of take a step back when we talk about SRE, I feel like um, sometimes that term is thrown around as if it's just one thing. And, and I, I don't know, you're, you know, I love to hear your experiences because I find that diff 
you know, different organizations have a different definition of what that means. What is site reliability and what is a site reliability engineer? And I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you tend to think about that? Not define it, but how do you see it being implemented? And is there like a, you know, sort of like the ideal way, or is it that every organization should sort of have to figure that out on, on their own and, and make me make it a little bit more, I don't know, custom or, you know, different depending on what they're trying to do? That's a great question. And it's one that um, at Split, you know, I joined when we were a very small company. I was the, the second engineer in the U.S. And so one of the things, you know, not not that uh, late into the company, we were hiring our first operations, you know, teammates and looking to hire an SRE. And we had to go through that process of what does an SRE represent? What are the, the requirements of the role? Um, actually, Google uh, has put out this really great video series um, called... Uh, a class SRE implements DevOps. Um, and the idea behind it is that effectively, you know, they set forth a series of requirements or, or tenants of developer operations, things like reducing organizational silos, accepting failure as normal, implementing change, leveraging tools and automations, and, and measuring all of that. Um, and then they go into detail about how the SRE role within Google um, effectively focuses on executing against and then kind of a particular flavor of implementing all of those kind of core ideas that, that Google sees DevOps to be. Um, I think you bring up a great point that what works for Google, you know, doesn't necessarily work for, you know, many uh, other organizations or even most organizations, you know, there's all very different concerns that are happening there. Um, for me, as I like to think about SRE, like it's very much kind of taking the name at face value, you know, site reliability engineer. And what goes into site reliability from my perspective is things that with regards to, you know, uptime, with regards to this, the stability of that system, the security of that system, and then being in a position where, you know, you can maintain that quality uh, over time. And so as we look at all of the automations that have been built out, whether the, you know, the software, the, the, the new things that everyone's kind of putting forth in this space, you know, you, you can see how CICD is core to that, you know, making sure that you can deploy reliably and consistently. Yeah, that falls into being reliable as a site. You see how a lot of the, the core security concerns uh, fall into that. Um, but you can also then look at items where, you know, the way that we treat uh, SRE today at Split is, you know, we, we work with them to kind of, as a developer, we build out the infrastructure and the operations that we're going to require. And then we talk over those requirements with our SRE team to see if they flag things that maybe, you know, they're the experts in the room that can make recommendations, but are less focused on actual, the day-to-day -day operations work. Um, yeah. So I, I will give my kind of interpretation of the way I see things. Um, and to me, it, it's definitely much more nuanced and evolved over the years, but I definitely see DevOps is this broad set of concepts and principles. And then to me, SRE is kind of like a level of like discipline ab above. Um, and it's probably only makes sense in like a much larger organization when you start really having real specialization. I think, I think you can have, you know, like very awesome, amazing DevOps, <clears throat> sorry, DevOps practices in a you know, five person organization with one person maybe taking the lead on building out infrastructure, you know, building in like all of the understanding, all of the um, infrastructure pieces, like that, you know, the templates that get your, that build your infrastructure, you know, things like CloudFormation, Terraform versus having, because it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make any sense why you would, you know, you'd, you bring on some new employee and you're in a small organization, why would you go out and teach them all of these things about the cloud? It's just like this huge amount of extra stuff that, that somebody doesn't really need to know, but uh, that if they're writing the core of your software, but it's really important for the people that are kind of building and making sure infrastructure stays up. And to me, the reason, part of the reason why I say SRE, I think is like this like next level discipline is because it, it's like 
not only do you, you know, have all these great foundational DevOps practices and policies, but then like SRE is, you know, to me, to in my interpretation of it, it's when you get to the SRE level, like there's complete alignment across the software organization or technology organization. I don't know really where those boundaries necessarily end, but it goes from VP all the way down to like the developer where they understand that like if they release code and it breaks stuff, um, and if they continue to break stuff and to, to such a level that they might be in, you know, maybe they have to get involved with fixing infrastructure issues and those types of things. It's, it's, they have some ownership of whether this, the services stay up or not. And uh, so I think it, it, SRE is more of a shared responsibility, but like there's a lot more specialization that has to go on. Um, but I think, I always think that you would want to, spe- I think, you know, I don't know how large of an organization you need to be typically before you maybe have some dedicated DevOps person. I'm thinking very specifically of a friend who runs an e-commerce company. Um, It's really an e-commerce tools company. And I think they were around 20, 15 to 20 employees when they hired their first DevOps person. Now, but that's developers and and all, all other folks, marketing and everything. And um, and that, that is a very heavy technology driven company. And, but it was only basically, you know, when, once they had, it was basically a developer doing all this work. And at some point they were like, okay, we want this developer to be able to go back to doing work and because he's not doing a great job doing DevOps stuff. And so now we can actually bring in somebody who knows how to do proper DevOps stuff. And so I think you will definitely find blended what I would call like a blended like engineer that really can dance both ways. And I mean, I think most DevOps folks that are doing this stuff day to day, you know, are able to jump into software roles as well. It's maybe they they're choosing to do uh, infrastructure more so. So that, that's kind of my five minute <laughs> summary of what, what I think all of this looks like. So. I think that's a great way to put it, Scott. You know, that that idea of, you know, prioritization and, and roadmaps. It's like when, you know, when you're in a position where you're trying to decide between do we build this feature or do we make our site more reliable or, you know, improve our deployment pipeline, that's when you start making those decisions of like, oh, th- these are both important enough that like they, you can't trade off one versus the other. They should probably be two different roles, two different streams of work so that we can focus on them independently from one another yeah and sometimes these problems are really you know complex and you can't they take some time to track down and is is it really a software issue or is it like underlying libraries or operating systems or all of these things right so yeah you also and you know this is diving a bit more into the operation side of things but one of the things that i've often experienced growing organizations growing products is that you might build a feature or a piece of your system and then that might not be seeing a lot of product iteration you know core software development the the code might not be changing very much but the scale and your usage and the customers that you have on the system might be changing considerably and so then the considerations of, you know, what do we need to be able to maintain this or to, to use this at another level requires a new round of development to a certain extent, but it's much more operations focused development. Like, are we using the right technologies? Are we taking the appropriate approach? Um, and that takes a very different skill set than the people that just are kind of implementing the future in the first place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think back to like, so in, in my organization, you know, there's been this push to go multi-cloud and, you know, slowly by, you know, they've been setting aside time for DevOps folks to like try to learn other clouds and stuff like that. And that just, that just takes a lot of time. And I intentionally said, no, I, right now, I think it's best that I focus exclusively on AWS. I'm not, if you really need me to, I will start looking elsewhere. But I think for what, what my role is in the organization at this time, I'm better off focused on AWS. Just compa- a lot of this has to do with where I am 
in my my knowledge of aw a lot of different aws tools versus my a lot of my coworkers so i have a lot of really senior folks i work with that have been doing this stuff they've been actually working in aws for 10 years and i've been using aws for 10 years myself but my focus on devops and uh, a lot of the more sophisticated you know automation stuff is only a few years. It's only been the last three or so years that I've been back into it. I worked as a sysadmin for the first 10 years doing very different stuff, but uh, somewhat related, you know, <laughs> to me it is at least. Yep, for sure. You know, you know and one thing that um, I, I've sort of um, picked up on is that, you know, and again, I, I sort of take a step back, just the role that I have is, is a little bit of a, you know, sort of a, already as almost like an observer to, you know, the DevOps folks and the, and the, and the devs, the developers. And, and what I find really interesting is I spend most of my time with clients who are probably more, I don't know, enterprise, whatever you'd want to call it, but sort of bigger companies that have more legacy and technical debt, right? <laughs> you know, to sort of put it, put it mildly. And, you know, it's interesting to me is, you know, I mean, I think this sort of moves us into the next point that we we're going to talk about, but, you know, what's, what's the driving force of, of DevOps and how do they start to, to take it on? And what I find that happens quite often is that they're using or they're, they're still sort of in that place where they were with, you know, sort of the infrastructure people over here and operations people, right? And then the developers totally sort of separated out, working closer to the business than the infrastructure people have ever done, right? And, and now all of a sudden you're trying to say, well, how do we become more agile and just culturally agile? And how do we, um, you know, sort of take on some of these roles? And, you know, maybe it's because, you know, sometimes I even find that it's almost like from a recruiting standpoint, like, well, we got to call them DevOps engineers or else we'll never be able to hire like the skills that we want to be able to hire. And so like people start having these titles of, you know, of, of a DevOps engineer or an SRE or something like that. But, I, you know, and I'm sort of scratching my head. I'm like, I don't know that you really are doing that. You're sort of still being an infrastructure and operations person and you're still mm -hmm. opening, you know, 500 tickets to make it anything happen and, and all that. And it just sort of makes me sort of wonder like what, what's going on? Is it purely reactive or are they actually trying to like remove obstacles and, um, and move the organization forward and try to be a bit more agile on how they approach things? Yeah. I, I just was having a conversation with somebody today and somebody reminded me of the concept of, of, of push versus pull. Whereas like, a, you know, the, people show up and create a ticket and they're pushing things into your queue versus you, you know, proactively pulling, say a, you know, a, some kind of work off of this, you know, like maybe you're making an enhancement to a system and stuff like that, but it's done in a very scheduled, more methodical way. Yeah. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for Mac OS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at ifreakshow.com. Yeah, I, I'm really, really baffled by seeing large organizations that, are, that, that, that drive so much of their change through using, you know, ServiceNow tickets or whatever system they're using that creates this, I don't know, like really, like it's very separate from like the development work cycle and, you know, I, so I, it's just really, I think, okay. One of the things I wanted to kind of redefine a little bit, I think was that the, the things that we have, we kind of see in kind of my experience in consulting is you get a lot of folks that are running pipelines, right? And so they call that DevOps. We're delivering code, you know, to these different environments, QA, dev, test, whatever you want to call them with a pipeline. And maybe they're doing fun stuff in there where they're actually backing up databases and linting code and, you know, creating artifacts and all those things. And then what I see is like, there's a second level of folks that are using actually using these infrastructure building tools like Terraform and CloudFormation to actually then build out their infrastructure. And then that is also you know, push through a pipeline. And so to me, that's like another level because I, I really see a lot of people at kind of like level one, 
and starting to see, you definitely see a lot more people at level two, but like one of the things that I think is what is kind of beyond that is that, that all of that, like that infrastructure is not, you can't, nobody can touch it because the, it's the entire pipeline that builds it and deploys it and sets it up, but nobody is ever able to touch that. And, and a lot of this is around like that third level is to me is more about security, audibility, compliance, because it's like, Hey, we have all these things and we can show you logs and these logs are shipped off into some secure environment that nobody has access to. Like literally nobody, like one person or two people or something like that have access to. Right. And, um, you know, and there's all kinds of things that you can verify logs and all this stuff. Right. But, you know, to me, it's like getting this, this like really high level of, of compliance and auditability, uh, that, that, you know, like you're following like good practices and stuff. And it's the kind of thing that I think if you're, if you can get to that third level, like it's, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily that hard. I think what happens is that people don't, they're not really even sure that that, they don't even know that that exists. I think a lot of times, I, I think I see this in these big corporations where they don't, they don't know that that ex really exists and they don't maybe value it because like, I mean, it seems like everybody's more interested in security these days, but I think a lot of it is like, they're afraid of losing data and that's why they're more interested in security and, but they're not really building that kind of like third level um, DevOps kind of thing. And it's, yeah, so I don't know, that's just one of the things the kind of the tiers I see in kind of what DevOps means to me is, you know, yeah. Yeah. And building on that idea, you know, people kind of missing the, the concepts or the terminology, Jeffrey, you even touched on this, um, this idea of, Larger organizations, they'll say, okay, you know, we, we need to make the migration to the cloud or we need to become more agile or we need to build out, uh, you know, dev, DevOps, you know, especially, you know, one of the things that I, I've done working with enterprises as part of, you know, consultancy is seeing a lot of companies that, you know, they, they kind of stumbled into being software companies. You know, they were a retail business or they were, uh, you know, an in-person store or even something completely different. And now most of their business is happening online. And so they've hired all these engineers, but, they, you know, the, the practices, it's, you might have a couple people in the organization that are, are taking seminars and, and kind of learning what to do. And so you, you know, the classic example of this is with, with Agile. You know, the, the core principles of Agile development really fall into those categories of that, that measure or that build measure learn loop you know you, you kind of create something you you then see how that performs and you use that to drive your, your future development um, but what often people take away from that is oh you're working in sprints you know you you have your deliverables and you get them out as fast as possible and the whole measuring and learning part that's really hard there's a lot of telemetry you need to put in place mm -hmm. it's, it's tr tricky thing so you you repeat the actions that you see others doing without necessarily understanding the motivation behind those actions and so when i look at devops i, I often see that repeated there where you see organizations that will go in and say oh you've got devops engineers and they're working on you know delivering cicd so devops equals cicd um you know or you know, you, you have a site reliability engineer and they care about uptime. And so SRE equals uptime. Um, and kind of expanding that definition, going into those levels as you were describing, Scott, makes such a big difference for how an organization can really think about and plan out their structure um, and, and deliver value in a much more, I'd say, flexible way. Uh, you know, what's, take the pieces that are relevant to your organization and where it is in this process rather than just trying to go through the motion. Yeah, no, no, it's a good, it's a good point. You talk about the metrics and um, kind of like, you know, I, I, that's like such a huge open-ended topic. And the, my kind of like one sentence answer always with metrics is like, you should only track things that are going to change your behavior. So don't track a bunch of stuff that doesn't change your organization's behavior. And if you are tracking stuff, maybe you should stop looking at it because it's just, 
like pointless because like the whole point of information is it's supposed to inform decisions and help you make better decisions and make and change your behavior. And I just, so, Oh, the other point I want to point out, like you talked about, uh, you said motivation, right? Like that organizations have this motivation and, and I think what a lot of times I, I see lacking and it's because I've realized this about myself and I've become kind of a philosopher. I've realized that 20 years ago, I would have never said, oh, I'm a philosopher. But what's happened is the more I read, the more I like start to embrace a lot of these concepts in my life, I see how, in, how invaluable having principles are, right? And principles don't mean like, I'm not going to steal. I mean, yeah, you, that can be one of your principles. But uh, so a, kind of a core foundation of DevOps in my mind is this principle that things are automated and they happen and they're in code bases and that you document them, you write tests for them. If you, you know, there might be some cases where like, you know, Hey, this is like a small one-time thing. We'll probably never do again. We don't need to have a test for this or something, you know, like, but to me, like having principles that we want to write tests, we want to automate, you know, like, and so on and so on and so forth like those drive your behaviors, not like being motivated to like not get sued, right? Like if, you, if, if everybody in your organization is keeps talking about these same things over and over again, and that's what I see missing in these conversations with these, you know, huge companies is there's just, there's this complete detachment from the philosophical principles why we want to do these things. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, I totally um I, I think that there, there's a lot of uh, truth to that. I, I think there's, you know, one other aspect that, that we haven't really talked about. Um, and that's really interesting to, to me is, is, you know, so in, um, in Beyond the Goal, Dr. Goldrat points out something that I think is so interesting where he talks about when a company does put in, let's say, a new tool, a new methodology, whatever it is, uh, he uses the example out of about ERPs. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they're doing that, what happens is, uh, he, you know, he talks about how through his research, he has seen this time and time again, that, that they'll implement it and then they'll realize that, uh, or they'll come to realize later that they actually haven't achieved a lot of what they thought they would achieve. Like they mm-hmm. haven't gotten those efficiencies or, you know, cost reductions or higher revenue or, you know, whatever the goal, you know, of that, of that implementation was. And what he said was that what they looked back and figured out was that, it was because whenever there's a deficiency, then you sort of create these rules, like organizations will create these rules or processes or whatever mm. um, to, to sort of handle, manage that deficiency in the best way that they could. So like he used yeah. the example that when manufacturing plants first started rolling out the MRP um, you know, software packages, like the vast majority of them never got any better. Like they weren't able to do... Um, you know, there's sort of cost analysis and, and all that. It wasn't happening any faster. They weren't becoming more efficient. They weren't, you know, selling more widgets and all that. And it was because the rules that they had beforehand were that, you know, because when you did it manually, you could only do it once a month. They never changed that rule. And even though it was now automated and you could do it more than once a month, nobody had changed that mm-hmm. rule. As silly yeah. as that seems. And I was just thinking that, you know, how often do we see organizations like what we were just chatting about, like, you know, you're trying to move into a more, you know, you're trying to move into DevOps, you're trying to move into a CI, CD, you're trying to move into something else. But if all, if you're still following all those old rules that you had beforehand that sort of help you figure out how to, I don't know, manage the tickets in the queue or, or whatever it is, and you don't change that, you don't change those processes, then, you know, I think maybe to Scott, to, to your point, um, or though Henry probably made it too, like you can call it whatever you want to call it, but you're still going to be doing the same things you were before. You're not going to get any more, you know, efficiencies or, or get, you know, more productivity out because you're still, you haven't, you know, sort of changed all those rules that were in before. And that, and it really points out that that's what you have to do. You have to then, you know, whenever you're rolling out something new, the, the other piece you got to do in parallel is rip out all those old rules and figure out, you know, I guess the really the first step is figure out what all those old rules were, rip them out and have a replacement for them. And I feel like it's so true to like what we're talking about as well. Yeah, no, I agree. No, those, the, the, those books are great. Um, yeah. The Toyota Kata as well. And um, yeah, it, the, 
Sorry, I'm Sorry. just like trying. I, the I was just going to say the um, the thing about those all of these like manufacturing de doing DevOps is it requires like a lot of discipline and a lot of like like trudging through like just monotonous stuff to kind of get these changes and then to start being able to measure things and then be like, okay, well, this isn't doing any better. And then like, I, I think you have to be an incredibly curious and open-minded person and, and willing, like you have to build a culture where you can, where failure is completely okay. And, you know, I, I just think that it's hard. It's, there's a lot of work there. <laughs> You know, when we look at, you know, whether it be running experiments or making releases or you know, any kind of process changes you're talking about, Jeff, uh, you know, there's this idea that, you know, whenever you make a change, you, you know, one approach is simply that does this not make harm? You know, can I put this out there without causing issues? Can I add a feature or add a new step to our build or add even a new suite of tests? Like as long as they pass, great. More test coverage is, is good test coverage. But being in a position to evaluate like whether you're gaining a benefit of like meaningful benefit from what you're adding is what really makes uh, you efficient. Um, you know, you can constantly add uh, lots of new features, lots of new steps to your process that just cause you to wind up run it, running in place. And while each one incrementally might not have, might just not really do anything or, or have a minor improvement, you have to think that that then slows down all future processes. That adds this extra, you know, debt, this legacy that people have to understand and wrap their heads around. And and so, you know, the hardest thing to do when you're trying to follow these approaches is um, to be in a position where you're willing to, you know, have an idea test that idea out, kind of build it, put it into place, and then evaluate it honestly and, and conscientiously and be willing to say, you know, not just, oh, well, this not, isn't hurting anything. And we, we spent two weeks on it or two months on it or two years on it. Like we might as well put it out there, but be able to say this didn't accomplish the goal. This isn't mm -hmm. doing what we thought it would do. So it doesn't matter how much time we sink into it. Like we'll walk away from it. And it's that basis, that being able to say, we're only going to put things out there that demonstrably improve our quality of life, you know, the key metrics, whatever drives your business. Um, that's, I think, what wind up, winds up driving when you look at Lean, when you look at Agile, those shorter iterations. That, that understanding of saying, okay, once I know the cost of adding in features or, or changes that don't do anything, then I know that I don't want to put those in just because we invested the time. And then when you're saying, okay, I'm going to cut features, no matter how much time we invested, if they don't deliver the value that we want them to deliver, then you're like, well, I want to spend as little time as possible on this, you know, next step to be and, and, and get that information as quickly as possible. And I think that's, you know, incredibly relevant to the developer operations space, because, you know, as you were talking about, Scott, earlier, this idea of automating um, your work um, operations, I think more so than many other roles within software is something that has a lot of repeated, you know, high value workload. You know, traditionally, when I was coming up, you'd have a, a person or a team of people that literally their number one job was just to, to hit that deploy button every night and to deal with the issues around it. And every single day was effectively the same day, just the same set of processes, the same set of steps. Um, and what I really like about, you know, more of this developer operations culture is that, you know, when you take that developer hat to those operations tasks, you're constantly looking at, okay, how do I take the job that I'm doing today and mean that I don't have to do it tomorrow? Like, how do I constantly operate, uh, automate away, you know, the work that I'm doing this year? Um, and because, you know, the, that comes in the form of, you know, initially, sure, it's your CICD, it's your deployments, maybe it's scaling up and down systems and you move that to something more elastic. But then it's, you know, oh, there's a new project and I need to make adding those servers as easy as possible, spinning up a new service as easy as possible, um, you know, dealing with uptime issues as easy as possible. That's where you start seeing 
the terraforms coming out people looking at hybrid clouds people working with kubernetes and docker and you know th there's some really incredible technologies coming about today to solve some of those larger and larger problems um and, yeah. but i think it's that that constant approach and philosophy of saying okay how do i take the the drudge work the things that i'm doing uh, more than once and automate that away and dedicate a meaningful amount of time to that um that i think really defines a lot of that shift to to more efficient developer operations yeah definitely hey folks this is charles maxwood and over the last few years i've gotten to know a lot of great people within the microsoft community and specifically in the dotnet area uh, one of our guests from javascript jabber Sean Clabo actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Um, so one of the things that we get often involved in at Stelligent um, is in helping kind of deliver some of these, you were talking about like developer, you know, enhancing the developer workflows, the environments, the not only just securing things and stuff like that, but so like we've done a lot of service catalog over the years of, you know, where you go into an environment and you basically set up sets of templates that developers can go in and they can create and get access to an environment or, or spin up systems that they can then, you know, push code to and test. And, you know, it's got a pipeline and all of this fun stuff. And, you know, so there's, there's this, it's not just the emphasis on like, well, we're going to automate the, the stuff that's going to production and maybe some, you know, production test servers and stuff like that. But it's also about like investing in the kind of the full life cycle. So, you know, investing in your developers and their workflow. And I mean, the, one of the things you see, I mean, it's, that's how we get things like React and all these different open source projects. Um, I, I'm sure there's a dozen of them that I can't pull out of my brain now, but that have come out of these big companies because they've, they've realized the value of investing in developer tooling. And then they, assign a bunch of people to build and, and improve on that. And, and I think that's, it's just it, big software organizations really, really get it. And they're really the ones that are helping us kind of spread this into these bigger kind of more slower moving older organizations. And, you know, it just, they're not learning the lessons and that's the really, really hard thing. I mean, that's one of the things that you see in like Toyota Kata book is that, you know, that, um, you know, they bring, you know, I don't know, 400 Japanese, you know, Kata experts, you know, in the eighties to work at the Numi plant in Northern California. And like, they can't make anything work well. And part of it is that like, they're just not like they, it just, it took them a while to bring along all of their American counterparts and to train them. And like, there was a lot of like other, like maybe some, maybe there's some cultural stuff there too, but it was all about like, that it, this stuff just takes time because people, you have to change the way people are thinking about these and approaching these problems. So with the, the next question we had on here was, is project management really dead? I don't know who put this one on here, but oh God. <laughs> that, was, that was mine. So I, I, I can explain that. So, um, you know, I, I've seen this in the IT world. I remember when I got my start in IT, I think it was right around the time that project management was like, it was the newest, I don't know, it was the newest thing. It was the thing that everyone was really bought into, that everything from an IT perspective um, was a black hole unless we assigned a project manager and we understood from the get-go what the requirements are, what the scope is, what the budget is, what the timeline is. And if we don't have a project manager assigned, then we know that the IT people will just like disappear and it won't happen or it'll take much longer and it'll take much more dollars and, you know, the scope will creep one way or the other and blah, 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 blah. And, and so everything became managers of project. And um, what's interesting to me is now, you know, I always thought that the, the whole thing was, a, after having lived through that enough times, I thought the whole thing was a disaster because you never had projects that ran 
on time and on budget. Like it just, it's impossible. And it has nothing to do with the project manager or anybody else. Like it's just, it's a flawed um, thought process. And, I, and I've been lately, I've been reading um, a seat at the table by um, Mark Schwartz. And he really talks a lot about this and, and has sort of brought it into like, I, I just sort of wrote the whole concept off, you know, but he really sort of brings into like why it's such a mess. And it's really because project management is all about like, those are your design goals. The design goals are on time and on budget. And uh, there's a lot more value to be brought, like what we were just talking about. What happens if, you know, down the road you realize, hey, wait a second here, uh, what we thought was a requirement really isn't. And really we, we need to change it because business value will come from this, not from this. And so you have to adjust scope all the time and you have to look at things and say, hey, the feature we thought was so important to customers really isn't. We found out, you know, we did more due diligence and we realized that it's not. And this other thing is more important. So, but in the project management world, that's the worst thing. Like having to do like, you know, like you have to file a whole bunch of new forms to say, hey, we're changing the scope and we're changing the requirements and the project champion has to buy off on it and yada, yada, yada. And we're going to yell at or, you know, whatever. And so like the whole paradigm just doesn't fit IT projects. Um, it fits really well with all the projects that you've done 500 times before, like when you're building a building, well, we've built many buildings. So project management really works well because we know how yeah. to do that, right? It's great for civil engineering. It's not good for technology that, that changes quickly and, and, you yeah. know, and all that. So, yeah, that's really what, what has brought it to my forefront because I still think, I mean, I still see it. Like you still see project managers out there and you still see IT being run as projects when it's such a terrible paradigm for it. And it's so antagonistic to the whole agile culture that we've been talking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in some organizations, project managers become product managers, become, I don't know, you know, what are the five other terms, right? Um, I, I, you know, and I think project manager is this really tactile set of skills as well. So I've hired um, project managers before and, and I even, I actually even worked on a Microsoft project server implementation. And I like, I learned a lot of it about like, you know, all this crazy, you know, what, what are those diagrams called? Gantt charts? Is that what they're charts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and oh. I mean, I, oh, so, but it, it, but I think, so for me, this is about like a fundamentally fundamental misalignment of understanding like what people are good at, like what are their strengths. And in my experience, when I have worked with great project managers or product managers, whatever you want to call them, they're like really incredible at like working, you know, working with people to like get things nailed down, kind of nudging them. And they're, they just will write, sit down and write all this stuff out. I just, I think that, specialization occurs partly because like there's only like when we're doing like really deep complex problem solving like programming and product design and user interaction design and all these different things it's so it takes so much work that they you can't like be you know running around and doing having 10 meetings a day and you know, having phone calls and writing up specs. And I mean, because somebody has to write these user stories, maybe instead of, a, you know, the project manager, instead of writing some 100 page thing, now they're writing like solid user stories and they're bringing in customer testimonials and examples and linking to support tickets and all kinds of fun shit like that. But you don't want your freaking programmers doing that, man. I mean, you, you want somebody who's like going to be good at organizing the chaos, you know? And so I think, you know, I've just seen project managers like save my life. Cause I've, you know, I've been in management positions where I'm trying to both be a technical person and be like an operations person. And it just kills me. It just, it's so hard The like, I like literally would be like, okay, today I'm going to do technical work and I would never look at any of the management stuff. So that's just my experience. And I just think, I think that's how I see it happen with most people. There are very few people I think that are so multidimensional that they can really excel yeah. switching brains like that. So. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting idea. Like take some of what the good points of project management and sort of shifting them into, you know, the environments that we want to work in and, and yeah. And, and what they're good at. No, I, I, yeah, it's, it's organization communication. Um, you know, I, I, I could go on longer if I could th if think for a minute, I, I specifically have this one woman in mind. She was just amazing. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, 
what you were saying, Scott, really resonates with me, um, both from the perspective that I do think these days, at least from a software development, I think operations is definitely a bit of a different beast. Um, but most of this is definitely in the realm of um, product managers today, product developers, whatever you might want to call them, um, where they're both responsible for the scoping and you know, planning of a project, as well as the project management once that the project gets in flight um, that I think has pros and cons, uh, you, know, uh, you know, more modern agile workflows, you know, scrum workflow, you see people putting, breaking things into tasks and putting story points on them and you just work from your backlog. And I think that that is kind of the more modern version of t the Gantt chart. You know, you, you often don't see things on Gantt charts. You don't see the full dependency structure laid out. Um, in my experience, the place where I've seen project management um, most successful has been in very waterfall old organizations <laughs> where you're in a position where hey this this project spec is something that the the product you know owner has been working on for two months before it ever sees engineers and when it gets to engineers like they don't have a ton of buy-in into what they're doing they're just kind of here's the specification here's what you need to build here's how you need to build it and then project managers can step in there well, and, and I worked with an incredible project manager at um, a company called Faxa that I used to work at, and she was in a position where she could, you know, put together, like, talk with each stakeholder on the team and then put together a Gantt chart that we'd hit, like, within a day or two of a, a three-month project that people would work on. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it since. But I think in the same way, as you were talking about, Jeff, like, you know, we then would have projects that would be planned out for months and we'd, we'd have a multi-month roadmap and then you'd get a month into it and realize, okay, we're missing this, we're missing that. And the only way that you could handle it would be to say, we can't change the scope. We, have to, we can't change the spec. We're going to can the current project. We'll start on the next one that's been worked on. And then this spec will go back to revisions and it'll get back on the backlog <laughs> at, at a later date. Um, and so... You know, it's it's the the opposite of a, an agile process in that respect. Um, yeah, totally. All right. Well, I think we worked through uh, the points that we wanted to, and it seems like we're at uh, probably just about a time, also, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's time for picks, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. Let, let's uh, kick off picks. Um, Jeff, you want to start us off? Yeah. You know, one thing that uh, that, that I've been yeah, I mentioned it earlier, but you know, one thing I've been paying attention to or listening to it. So, so it's, you know, after reading the goal, having read the, the Phoenix project and the unicorn project, um, I've now sort of gone back and, and I'm going through the audio books of beyond the goal. I did that. And now I'm, I'm on beyond the Phoenix project. And I think it's really worth anybody who's, um, you know, who's on either side of this to, to really spend the time to go through that. Cause you learn so much more like the goal. I mean, there's such great books that are easy reads, but they can't pack all the lessons learned, like all the, how did that actually work behind the scenes type of a thing, you know, can't really be put into all the stories. And so um, when you listen to these, um, you know, like read, you know, listening to beyond the Phoenix project right now, and listen to like Jim Kim saying, yeah, I think I listened to be, he listened to beyond the goal like 20 times and probably read the book several, you know, many times too and all this. And it's really what it takes to really be able to learn the lessons and figure out what's going on and how does this work and, um, you know, and, and how they, you know, how it all sort of applies. So there's so much research and um, lessons and consulting and so many like just years of experience that are sort of compressed into these works um, that we can all learn so much for. I mean, personally, this is beyond DevOps. Like I look at security and security operations, and I think we're sort of even behind where Agile and DevOps are. I think in some ways we're sort of trying to figure out, hey, how do we automate some of this stuff? And you know, how do we get rid of the power systems? Because I can tell you in every security team, there is somebody who, like the one or two people who know everything and they end up being relied upon on every incident and everything else that's going on. Um, so I, I just think that they're very applicable. So I, I spent you know, several minutes on that, but uh, I, they're, they're incredible picks to me to, to just go through those audio books and listen to them a few times. 
So I really agree with those picks, um, you know, from the perspective, as I look at the the developer operations space, security space, everything that's happening, um, you know, every organization runs up against the same considerations, the same complexities and the same set of problems. Uh, obviously the Phoenix project and the unicorn project are, are seminal in that space in terms of how we think about things, but being able to just collect this information from all different areas and, and combine it together, you know, tailor it to whatever's relevant to a particular um, you know, project or company. Uh, those are, that's the real art to this operations process. Uh, and, and I think that that's really a critical path to being successful. Um, now for my picks, um, you know, I, kind of as a, an aside to this, but unrelated to that agile um, note, uh, there's this really talented engineer, uh, data scientist, uh, Lucas Vermeer. Uh, he works over at booking.com as you know, leading their experimentation platform. And something that he made as a personal project, um, it's called So You Think You Can Test. Um, and it's effectively a website that gives you the ability to run a simulation and in that simulation, um, it basically goes through the process of developing features, developing a product. And so at each step of the way in that simulation, you can make decisions. You know, what do I want to roll out? What do I want to build? And, uh, you know, under the hood, it's it's kind of applying, you know, each one of those items in your backlog has uh, an impact that it will actually have on your customer base, on your sales numbers, as what it kind of reduces down to in that simulation. And so over the course of a month or a quarter or a year, you can run through that simulation. And then at the end, it will kind of spit out, okay, how successful were you? You know, how well did the decisions that you made based on the data you had compare to, you know, just making decisions blind? or not changing anything at all. And that gives you a really fascinating view in a way that is so hard to, to actually see when you're making those choices, when you're building products in the real world, because there are so many different factors and it all occurs over such a long time period that you know, it's, it's hard to grasp um, how your thought process actually is, is making an impact. And so uh, I really enjoy working with that tool. It really opened my eyes as to how people can iterate effectively within a system um, and it's something I'd love to see expanded I know he has plans to, to continue working on that project but I definitely recommend people check it out if you have any experience kind of building software cool now that sounds really interesting I think there's yeah it's, it's just amazing how many um, just you know great coding tools and projects and things that are out there for people to sort of get get involved get you know get into it even from a young age or or as an adult either way yeah uh, wonderful. So uh, Scott, unfortunately, had some computer issues, so had to drop off at the end. So we won't get his picks this week. Um, but I think at this point, that concludes the the podcast. Um, thank you all for, for listening. And then thank you, Jeff, for being on the show. It's been a really great discussion. Awesome. I totally agree. And uh, Henry has been great and looking forward to the next time. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.